Well, it's a joy to be with you all this morning. It's been a little while since I've been here. I'm always thankful for the opportunity to open God's Word and to meet with other believers. Um, no matter where we are, when we are in God's house, we are with brothers and sisters, and so it's a family reunion, even if we don't necessarily remember everybody's name. So it is, uh, it is a blessing to be here this morning. And as always, I, I miss when I'm here and your pastor's not here, but I understand uh, the importance of what he's doing, and I'm glad that you as a church have uh, sent him and uh, this other brother to learn the ministry there in India so that he can come back and report that. And uh, I, I do see that as being very valuable and would encourage any of you, if you have the opportunity to go on one of these trips, uh, to make every effort to do so. Well, I found out yesterday that tomorrow is Columbus Day. And as I was driving through my neighborhood, I, I spotted an absence in decorations for Columbus Day. I don't know... I don't know if your neighbors decorate for Columbus Day or not. Uh, my neighbors have, have skipped past Columbus Day uh, towards the end of the month. And so there are a lot of pumpkins and, and orange and black things and some freaky looking stuff in their, in their uh, front lawns. And so as we look forward to the end of this month when little children will come and pillage all of the candy in the neighborhood, it got me to thinking about the fact that, you know, when they, when they go out trick-or-treating... They have a costume on, and, and quite often they have a mask. And perhaps the mask is the most important part of the costume because behind the mask, you can pretend to be anything you want. right? You, you don't have to be yourself anymore because you've now assumed a new identity. And so you can be a superhero or a princess or whatever it is you want to be because you're behind that mask. You are hidden. You are secure in your uh, anonymity. And yet, at some point, the mask is going to come off, right? And the Scripture tells us that nothing is hidden forever. In fact, one day all will be revealed. All the words that are spoken in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. And so not all can be hidden forever. So when I think of little kids running around in costumes with masks on, I think of one word, hypocrite. Right? That's what they are. They're pretending to be something that they aren't. And so, in light of that thought, I've decided to, uh, to work through a couple different passages today that deal with hypocrisy. So, we'll deal with one this morning and one this evening, and we'll look at, uh, at a couple different aspects of this hypocrisy. Perhaps there will be some overlap, and that's okay. But the Bible does have a lot to say about hypocrisy. And Jesus talked about those that, that, that draw near to Him, or they honor Him with their lips but their heart is far from Him. You might be more familiar with all the times when He excoriates the Pharisees for being hypocrites. He talks about how they give to the poor in such a way as to be seen of men, or they, they give long prayers in public to be seen of men, or they fast in such a way that people will see them. And He says, you're hypocrites. What you're displaying on the outside is not true on the inside. You concentrate so much on the speck in somebody else's eye and you forget the beam that's in your own eye. You've ignored the more important issues of the law and you clean the outside, ignoring the inside. And so he talks about them being painted graves or sepulchers, you know, full of dead man's bones, but on the outside it's a good paint job. And so hypocrisy is true certainly of the scribes and Pharisees, but even some of Jesus' disciples and followers ended up being hypocrites. You might think of Peter 
as he's sitting among the Gentiles eating with them until the Jews arrive. And then he gets up and moves over to be with the Jews. This leads Barnabas to, to be a hypocrite as well. Or Ananias and Sapphira who said they gave all, but truly they were holding back a portion. Or we could talk about Judas Iscariot. There's several different characters and scenarios where we see hypocrisy showing up and, and Scripture tells us to avoid that, to avoid hypocrisy. Not just because all secrets will one day be known. But as Jesus said in Matthew 23, the the Pharisees, when they engaged in hypocrisy, they were shutting themselves and others out of heaven. And and even for them especially, they were going to reap a a much more severe condemnation as a result of this hypocrisy. And when, we, and when we see the sobering truth of what hypocrisy can cost the Pharisees, we have got to be very careful that we are not guilty of the same. When, when I came in, I heard uh, the reading of part of, I believe it was uh, Luke chapter 8, um, the parable of the soils, is that correct? Um, if you're not familiar with it, Jesus told a parable. It's recorded in a few of the different Gospels. And in this story, he talks about a man who's sowing seed. He's throwing out the seed, and it falls on different types of ground. And, and as he's telling this story, he keeps saying, He who has an ear, let him hear. And he gets done telling the parable, and the disciples say, We, we heard it, but we don't understand it. And so Jesus begins to explain to them that the soil, or the, uh, the seed, rather, is the word of God that's being spread. And the different soils represent different hearers of the word. Some hear in such a way that, that it's just kind of lost, that Satan just takes it away. Others hear, and it's, it's kind of like they're, they're in a rocky soil. And so there's not much moisture there, and the sun comes and scorches it. So even though there was a little bit of, of growth initially, it's quickly you know, scorched away. There's another seed that falls, and it starts to grow up next to thorns. And the thorns choke it out. And the other, seed, or the other uh, soil was good ground. And we see that the, the seed falls into it and it sprouts up and it starts bearing fruit 60-fold, 30-fold, 100-fold. And Jesus says, be careful how you listen. And as he's explaining to the disciples, he says the, the different soils represent the different hearers. That there are some who have it taken away from Satan. There are some who, who are tempted away. And by that temptation, then they fall away and they never have any growth. They never bear any fruit. Or some are choked out by the concerns of this world because they're chasing after wealth or they're chasing after pleasure. And he says they never grow any fruit. But the soil of the the, the person who hears with joy and receives it and perseveres has much fruit. And and so I think there's a few things that we can can learn from this parable or, or things that we can observe. First of all, not all who hear accept the Word. Not all who hear will accept the Word. Perhaps you've shared the gospel with somebody and they didn't accept the word. And you recognize this is true in life. And Jesus prepared his disciples for that, that not all the hearers will accept the word. A second observation is not all who claim to accept the word will retain it. Not all who claim to accept it will retain it. Some of those will fall away when persecution comes or some will be distracted by the world. But even though there's some initial growth, that's not necessarily a guarantee that there will be fruit. And the third observation is that there will be some that will demonstrate salvation in their lives by bearing fruit. And it might be of various uh, kinds or, or measures. And in this parable, as well as in other places in Scripture, 
It's assumed that the genuine response to the gospel is growth. We also see this truth in the book of James. If you have your Bibles, you can join with me in turning to James chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, it's in the, uh, the second half of the Pew Bible there on page 178. James is writing to scattered believers that have, that have undergone a lot of persecution. And as they're scattered around, he's writing to them, helping them to be mature, or to be complete. Some translations say perfect. The idea would be like a puzzle where you have all of the pieces. Some of the pieces might be worn. They might have bite marks from the children or the animals. But if you have all the pieces, you can finish the puzzle. And James is saying he wants the believers to be complete. He wants them to be finished. And so part of that instruction in chapter 1 is that they be doers of the word and not hearers only. He said, if you're only a hearer, you're deceiving yourself. But you need to be a doer of the word. And what does that look like? Well, he says, one of the ways that you can be a doer of the word is to help orphans and widows in their affliction. That is, people that can't help you back or repay the favor. And so true religion is to show kindness and love, demonstrate that love, to people in need. When he gets to chapter 2, James argues that faith without works is dead faith. Faith without works is dead faith. This evening we're going to seek to answer the question, how useful are you? How useful are you? Hopefully all of us are useful enough to show up tonight. tonight today, though, this morning, we'd like to answer the question, how useful is your faith? How useful is your faith? We're going to read James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And notice how many times he mentions use or useless. Because he's going to try to determine how useful the person's faith is. Beginning in verse 14, he says, What use is it, or how useful is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see then that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Again, we're seeking to answer the question, how useful is your faith? 
In the passage that we just read, James asserted that a faith which doesn't produce works is useless. Now, if James is right, and if your faith is not producing works, then he's speaking directly to you. He's saying your faith or your claim of faith is useless. It's not useful for anything. And so James is going to contrast between two different types of, we'll say two different types of faith. Essentially, one is just a claim of faith. It's somebody saying, I have faith, but I don't have any proof. And on the other side, we have what we'll call saving faith. That is, we have faith, and there is proof. And so the, the two sides are, are against each other here, and he's going to contrast them. But he's saying that this type of faith that is only a claim that has no works attached to it is useless. It's completely useless. He gives us an illustration in verses 15 and 16. Suppose that you have a brother or a sister in need. Okay, and just to go back to chapter 1, we'll pretend it's an orphan or a widow. And you can tell that they need clothing. Winter's coming. Snow is about to fall any, any moment now, right? They're going out. They don't even have a jacket or a sweatshirt. And you say, I hope you stay warm. Yeah, I heard you didn't get a meal today. I, I hope you find food today. Well, that might be a good sentiment. You might feel better about yourself having said that. But how has that helped them? Right? It, it hasn't accomplished anything. He said, you haven't met their need And so those words are empty. They're useless. They've accomplished nothing. And that's exactly the same way it is for someone who claims to have faith when they have no works. It reminds me a little bit of uh, a situation or a a gymnast who turned into a tightrope walker back in the 1800s. His stage name was Blondine. Maybe you've heard of him. He crossed the uh, Niagara Gorge several times. Uh, first time, he just kind of walked across on the tightrope, 1,100 feet, no big deal. And uh, the, the crowd cheered. They'd never seen anything like it before. Well, being a gymnast and an acrobat, he thought, well, let's, let's change it up a little bit. So he tried it with stilts. Again, the crowd cheered. He did it blindfolded. The crowd cheered. At one point, he actually took a small stove out to the middle of the tightrope, cooked an omelet, ate the omelet, and then finished his way across. He tried to do anything he could to really spice the life up. And at one time, he he took a wheelbarrow across, put some potatoes in it, walked it back across. The crowd again erupted in cheers, and he said, how many of you think I can take a person across in this wheelbarrow? The crowd cheered, yes, we all believe you can do it. The The crowd quickly quieted down when he asked for a volunteer. See, it's one thing to say, I believe you can do it, It's another thing to hop in the wheelbarrow. And so what James is trying to get across to them is, is your faith has got to respond the way faith is is meant to respond. Now, we, we could use an illustration of an apple tree. I don't have an apple tree in my yard, but let's pretend that I have a tree in my yard and I call it an apple tree. It doesn't have any apples on it, but I tell you it's an apple tree. And you say, I've got a tree in my yard that's got apples on it. So you show me how your tree is an apple tree without any apples, and I'll show you how my tree is an apple tree by my apples. So then I take some apples and I duct tape it to the tree, and I say, see, apples, right? Well, well, clearly that doesn't make the tree an apple tree any more than a person who says they have faith starts doing works 
on their own. They say, oh, I, I can do works. Sure, I, I can do that. And I'll do this and I'll do that. See, the idea of fruit is that it's not something that you have to tack on to the plant or the tree. It's something that starts from within and works its way out. And just like an apple tree is going to produce apples without having to try, without having to sit there and say, make apples, make apples, make apples. It happens naturally. A a person who has true saving faith on this side, the one who has true saving faith is going to produce these works. It's going to naturally come out because it's the Spirit that's doing the work inside. You might be familiar with Galatians 5 where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And he lists different aspects of that fruit. There's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faith. All of these things that we're not adding to the gospel. It's what the gospel change inside of us comes out looking like. And so he says the Spirit is doing a work in you to produce this fruit. And the question is, do you see it? Is it evidenced in your life? Now, someone might look at the scenario and say, this seems like it's contradicting the, the doctrine that Paul lays out of, of salvation by grace alone. You know, Paul mentions this in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, and he talks about how we can't be saved by works. Right? So, we'll switch up the, the, the platform here a little bit. On this side, we've got uh, a person who is unsaved. They're, 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 not, they're not a believer at all. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul says that they are dead in trespasses and sins. And we'll let the pulpit represent uh, regeneration, okay, the point of, of spiritual life. And then on this side, we'll have the person who is redeemed. Now, when Paul writes and he says, you can't get saved by works, he's talking about somebody that's on this side over here. They're an unsaved person. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And he says, you can't do any works because you're dead. It's impossible for you to do anything that pleases God. The only way you can come to God is if He calls you and draws you to Himself and gives you spiritual life. And once He does that, then you come over on this side and now you have spiritual life. And James is now talking about the person on this side. And he says, if you truly were regenerated you're not going to look like the guy on that side. Okay? So the guy on this side is spiritually dead. Just imagine there's a corpse up here. He says, if you're over here on this side and you look like a corpse, something's not right. It doesn't evidence any spiritual life within you if you look like the guy on that side. And so James's point is, a person who is saved, a person who has true faith, is going to have works. Not that it gets them saved, but that if they are truly saved, the Spirit will accomplish these works in them. He's going to give us a couple of illustrations, but before he does that, he, he, he gives this objection. Someone might say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Essentially, he's saying that saving faith is more than just the statement of belief in something or someone. It it can't just be a statement saying, I've got this. Just like I say, I've got an apple tree. No, it doesn't have any apples, but it's an apple tree. Uh, An empty statement of belief doesn't do anything, just like 
saying that you believe the tightrope walker can carry a human in a wheelbarrow. The statement on its own does nothing. It accomplishes nothing. Because faith can only be validated by works. You notice in verse 19, he says, you believe that there is one God or that the Lord is one. That's taken from Deuteronomy. He says, but the demons also believe and shudder. So you have good doctrine. That's great. You have this belief and that's great. But you're no better than a demon if all you have is that belief. Claimed faith alone puts us in the same boat as demons. All throughout the Gospels, we see the demons coming out as Jesus is exercising them and they frequently will say, Son of David or Son of God or we know who you are, you are God. And he tells them to be quiet. Frequently, the demons express that they know who Jesus is and they know how significant He is. So for us just to say, well, I believe Jesus is God makes us no better than the demon. How could we possibly think that the end of our life is going to look any different than the end of the demon? Then James gets a little bit rude, perhaps. Maybe it, maybe it seems rude to me. In verse 20, he says, Only a fool would trust in a faith that doesn't produce works. He says, Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? He's telling him, I have evidence that I want to show you, but are you even willing to look at the evidence? Are you willing to examine it? And if you are, he's going to give a couple of illustrations. And so again, he's telling us that claimed faith is useless because faith can only be validated by works. Claimed faith alone puts us in the same boat with demons. And only a fool would trust in a faith that doesn't produce works. Jesus told people uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Jesus said there's lots of followers that claim me as their Lord. In fact, he goes on to say, they prophesied in his name. In, in his name, they cast out demons. In his name, they performed many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I'm not sure how many people fall in that category of being able to cast out demons and do miracles and still not be one of Jesus' chosen. But I know at least one by the name of Judas. He was able to do all of the same miracles that the other disciples were able to do, and yet he fell away. He is called the son of perdition. And so Jesus says, just a claim that I am your Lord doesn't mean anything unless you are willing to do the will of my Father. To borrow the language of Matthew 7, by their fruits you will know them or you will recognize them. And so when we look at the fruit of a person's life or when we examine the fruit of our own life, do we see the fruit of repentance? Do we see the fruit of the Spirit? In the second half, he tells us that saving faith results in good works. So a claimed faith is empty, it's useless, but a saving faith will result in good works. And he gives us a few different illustrations here. Again, there might be uh, the objection that, that James here is disagreeing with Paul. 
And they say, well, Paul said you, 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 know, you can't have any works. You just have faith. And James here is saying faith without works is dead. It does seem like a contradiction. It does seem like they're arguing. But if what James is talking about is, is leading to salvation, if James is talking about this side and saying this is what you need to do in order to get saved, then James is actually in contradiction with James. Because in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, he talks about the fact that it was in the exercise of God's will that he brought us forth with the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He's saying that it's all of God when we become a believer. So if James is arguing with Paul, he's also arguing with himself. So I think we have to look for a different solution. What is James saying? And again, I believe James is arguing a different question with a different audience. He's not talking about people who have yet to be saved. He's talking about someone who claims that they already are saved. And he says, if you're on this side and you still look like you're on this side, that's a problem. Your claim is a useless claim. And so he gives us a couple of illustrations, three illustrations. The first is Abraham. Notice in verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? We go back to Genesis. We see that, that God promised to Abraham, I'm going to give you endless nations. People like the sands on the, on, the, on the seashore. And I'm going to do it through one son, Isaac. And, and, and Abraham believed it. And in Genesis it says, God looked at that faith, his belief, and counted it to him as righteousness. James quotes that. But it isn't until much later in, in the book, in Genesis, that we see that faith is tested. And God said, you know that son that I told you you're going to have all these grandchildren through? I want you to take him, put him on an altar, and kill him and sacrifice him to me. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Abraham, I'm thinking, this doesn't compute. This doesn't make sense. If God promises me this thing, and he says it's going to happen this way, and then he takes away Isaac, how can he keep his promise? But Abraham doesn't think the way I think. Abraham said, okay, let's do it. Abraham takes Isaac out, takes the knife, takes the wood, has the fire. He's all set, gets up to the mountain. He's about to kill his son. And the angel of the Lord stops him and says, now I know that you have faith. Now I know that you trust in me. It's been confirmed. Or in the words of James, it's been fulfilled. That, that faith, that, that trust that you placed in me before, it is still very much real. It's still very much active. And it's produced in you these actions where you're willing to sacrifice your one and only son, the son of promise, because I told you to. I know that your faith is real because of this. So Abraham went a little further than our illustration before. Abraham didn't get in the wheelbarrow. He took his son and put his son in the wheelbarrow. He said, yes, God, I trust you this much. I will give you the thing that means the most to me. And God said, the angel of the Lord said, now I know that you truly trust me. You truly have faith in me. And so Abraham demonstrates his faith through his works. And God counts it to him as righteousness. 
says in verse 22, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected or it was completed. He had faith already. It wasn't just a claim. It was a real faith. But that faith caused him to work. And we we could say this way. Saving faith is going to cause works. Or saving faith works. It produces those works. It's not that Abraham sat there and thought, you know, how can I prove this to God? What could I possibly do? It's that the, the faith was working within him to allow him to trust God with everything he had. To cause him to obey in that time of crisis. Well, James gives us another illustration. Notice in verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? You might recall in uh, the book of Joshua, the spies go out and they come to Jericho and they've got to find a place to stay that doesn't look suspicious. You know, here they are spying out the land. If they, they start, you know, trying to meet people, it's going to become very clear who they are. So they find a spot that's not going to draw a lot of unnecessary attention to them. And when they meet this harlot, Rahab, she says to them, we know who you are. We, we've seen, we've, we've heard testimony of the way your God works. We've heard about the Red Sea crossing. We've heard about all the things you've done to those kings. In fact, all the people are scared of you so much so that their knees are literally knocking against each other. It's right there in the text. It's perhaps the first time that expression's ever used, knees knocking together. And she's, she makes an interesting statement. She says, I know that your God is the God of heaven and earth. Okay? So she, she's demonstrating that she has faith, that, who, that God is who he says he is and who his people proclaim him to be. And what's the result? She not only takes them in joyfully, Hebrews says, but then she protects them when the guards come. And then she sends them another way, it says here in James. She received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And she demonstrated her faith. Here here are spies. How can you trust the word of a spy? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah. If you protect us, we'll, we'll take care of you and your family. She had faith in God that he would not allow her this promise that was given to her to go unmet. So her faith was justified by her works, or it was proven, it was demonstrated by her works. And so we see that she made a call. She, she took action based on the fact of what her belief was. And James summarizes at the end. He says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. He gives us these three illustrations. He starts off with Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish community. Again, he's writing to Jews that are scattered. And so he picks Abraham, this male, patriarch, Jewish man. And then he picks Rahab, a Gentile woman whose lifestyle was less than commendable. And I have a feeling that perhaps James's point here is to say it doesn't matter who the person is. It can be from the one you respect the most to the one you respect the least. And everybody in between, their faith is only true faith if it produces works. It doesn't matter if it's the patriarch. 
He can't just claim faith and not do works. It's not real. It doesn't matter if it's the, the, the woman here, the proselyte that comes in through the protection granted to her from her family. It wasn't that she was just being selfish. It's that she was trusting in God. She had faith that works. And then he talks about the end of your life when your, your body is separated from your spirit. And he said, just as a body without the spirit is dead, it's lifeless. It just lays there doing nothing. That's what claimed faith is that is not backed up by works. And we could talk about, you know, what works is he talking about? But he, the, the, the things that he's mentioned already, helping orphans, helping widows, you know, Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son, uh, Rahab taking in, all of these are just common obedience to God. And, and it comes up in different parts of your life. You know, at times maybe it's a, it's a financial struggle that you're going through and you, re- you recognize, I still need to give to the Lord. Or maybe there's a, a time in your life where you see somebody who desperately needs the gospel and you think, I- I'm too busy, I don't have time. It, it's the common obedience of life, doing what God's Word says to do, regardless of what reward you get from it, regardless of how it inconveniences you. He says, if you have true faith, it's going to produce these kinds of works. It wasn't Abraham was jumping up and down because he got to kill his son. It was a grievous thing for him to do. I don't necessarily think Rahab wanted to see her family or or her home get destroyed and, and her people decimated. But she recognized that her faith in the true God was going to lead her in a different way. So, so as, we, as we come to a conclusion here, what, what is it that we need to do? How is it that we need to respond to this text? Well, I would suggest that we examine ourselves. My, my pastor puts it this way. When the ambulance shows up in an accident, they don't ask for a birth certificate. They check for a pulse. And frequently when, when people say, are you saved, are you a believer, we tend to go back to that moment. Yes, I was saved on such and such a date at such and such a time. I was talking to so-and-so. Essentially, we're saying, here's my birth certificate. And James is, James is trying to help us see, you don't just look at your birth certificate. You check your pulse. Is my faith producing works? Is my life exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Am I obeying God even when it's difficult and when there's no reward? And he says, if, if, if you're not doing that, Check your faith. Because it doesn't sound like it's very useful. And if you're depending on that for your eternal life, you're depending in vain. I, I, I would encourage you, if you say, you know, I haven't really done a pulse check on myself, a spiritual pulse check, I'd encourage you, study Galatians 5. Look through the fruit of the Spirit. See, see if that's the way you interact with other people. Are you patient towards them when they're unkind? Are you loving towards them? Are you demonstrating patience and, and kindness and grace? Read through First John. He says, I wrote this so that you would know you have eternal life. And he gives us all these tests of how we can know we're a true believer. Check your pulse. See whether or not your faith is useful or whether it's useless. Let's not be hypocrites in the church, lazy hypocrites, unwilling to do the work that God has called us to. Let us be honest. Let us obey.
as he's called us to do. Let's pray. Father, it's so difficult to imagine responding the way Abraham did when you asked him to give up Isaac. And perhaps it is because my faith is so very weak. Father, I do ask that you would do a work in our hearts today. Help us as we examine ourselves, examine our faith to see if it is useful or whether it is useless. Help us to seek your will, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, and not our own. And Father, if there's any of us here today that after we examine ourselves, we find ourselves to just be hypocrites, please take away any pride that would keep us from confessing our sin and trusting in you. This is of eternal consequence. And so, Father, we do ask that you would help us to be sober about this, help us to have the faith of Abraham, that it just keeps getting stronger and increasing and that it flows through us in such a way that when the world sees us, they see something different. And they recognize it's not human. It has to be from God. Father, I do ask that you would be with us this afternoon. Help us as we reflect on your word, uh, not to run away from it too quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.